Hello, everyone, and welcome to our third episode of Globally Lit, a podcast on international literature and translation brought to you by the Chu Center for International Writers and Books Across Borders. My name is Matthew Davis, and I'm the founder and director of the Chu Center here at George Mason University. On this episode, we are going to feature Danish writer Mathilde Walter Clark in her novel Lone Star, published by Deep Vellum Press in 2021. The book was translated from Danish by two translators. Martin Aitken and K.E. Semmel. First, I'm going to be in conversation with Mathilde about her novel. We're going to discuss a bit of autofiction, memory, time, and the stories we tell ourselves about our personal and our national pasts. Next, Danish translator Misha Hoekstra will be in conversation with K.E. Semmel, one of the translators of Lone Star, about his work translating this great book. Mathilde Walter-Clark is the author of six works of fiction and a collection of essays. She grew up in Denmark with her Danish mother, but spent summers with her American father in St. Louis. Her latest novel, Lone Star, explores the relationship with her American father and her American roots. It was nominated for Danish Broadcasting Cooperation's Novel Award 2019 and was named one of the best books of 2018 by the Danish Arts Foundation. And with that, Matilda, I welcome you to Globally Lit. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. We're so excited you're here. Um, and I, I want to start this conversation by talking a little bit about, about genre. Uh, this book, Lone Star, is labeled a novel, yet so much of this, presumably, is based on real life and real people and real events. Your father, for example, is named his real name. So I wonder, how did you approach this material initially? And and can we classify this book as, as autofiction, which is you know, a genre right now that is very important in the international literary world? Um, I think that it's totally up to people to, to think about or decide what kind of genre it is for themselves. For me, it's I've put novel in front of the cover because I think novel is, is traditionally a very roomy category. And when I finished it, I thought, well, this is a novel. I mean, it has all the classic things that a novel has, and and I thought it it it, you know, I didn't think it was such a tricky question what it is, but I realized that I could have called it all kinds of tricky things because it's it's in a sense it's also travel writing. I mean, the whole second part of the book takes place. It's ten days I spent with my father in in Texas in in, in the small town he grew up in, and. Uh, and that, in a sense, is kind of travel, travelisk. Uh, but it, it gets informed by the first part of the book, which is some people would call it memoir or something. And and I think that that altogether it forms an integrated whole. That that for me, in a, in a, in an un- unproblematic sense, is is a novel. But I realize that it taps into this this whole. Uh, thing that's going on called autofiction. I, I don't have. I, I don't feel so much connection to that concept. I don't. I, I really don't know what it is. <laughs> so, uh, but if people feel, I mean, a lot of people have have thought it, it's that, and I think, well, go ahead. <laughs> it's fine by me. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about in a moment here those two parts of the book. I mean, they're titled memory book and travel book. And, and the first part is kind of a memoir. And the second part is 
definitely uh, more more essayistic or travel writing. And, and the memory book really is kind of a memoir about your summers in St. Louis and your relationship with your father, who is both, you know, physically distant because you're usually in, in, in Copenhagen in Denmark, but also kind of emotionally distant. He seems a little aloof. And that's something that comes up again and again throughout the book. But the other part is a trip through Texas um, with your dad to understand your American family roots. And, and as you mentioned earlier, Mathilde, there, there are different sections, but you can't really have the travel book without the memory book. Um, and so let's let's talk a little bit about the memory book first. And um, you know, at the end of that that section, you write this this phrase that just is is really beautiful. You, you mention threading the continents through sentences. Uh, and, and I'm wondering, you know, as you were growing up, how the summers you spent in St. Louis impacted your sense of identity as a young woman when you went back to Denmark in the fall and the winter and in the spring. I mean, what what did you did you present yourself as both American and Danish or, or were you, you know, when you were in Denmark, were you solely Danish? How did that work? I spent my first whole summer, it was like a whole summer in, in St. Louis when I was 11. And and that's a long time when you were 11, a summer is a long time. Now it, it goes by in a, in a snap. But, but back then it was long. And so, of course, that informed me very much. And also I was in Denmark, I'm an, I'm an only child. But in, in in St. Louis, I was a sibling. I had I had four siblings. Uh, my father has a new family in, in St. Louis, and so that was very rich for me to have these four siblings at the age of eleven. I didn't know I had them until my father told me when I was about eight, and um, and so I was part of that life in the summer. And then when I got back, I kind of fell out of that story. You know, it's 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 they had their life and they were, uh, you know, in that life full time, and I was only in that life part time. But then I I brought this little treasure back with me, this little, you know, gold nugget right. of my summer being part of this, you know, my father's family and having siblings and having, you know, going to summer school and doing American things. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I had this, but I, I didn't have anybody in Denmark to share it with because nobody participated in that life in Denmark. So it was two completely, you know, separate lives that was only connected in me. And uh, and so that's, in, in a sense, kind of compartmentalized or something. That, that's why I used that phrase, you know, threading the continents together, because I had to kind of find a way to make those two worlds meet uh, in a way to integrate them and, 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 and writing the book was an attempt to do that, uh, to build one word world out of words and sentences and, you know, make it real on paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you did a wonderful job with it. And I, you know, you mentioned your siblings and, and you know, you have four siblings in, in the United States and of course they have a mom and, and your, your stepmother plays a very important role in this book. And in fact, when I was, you know, reading the first part, I almost was thinking about this is this, this is beginning to be like a book about your stepmom. And she's not even, <laughs> she has no name. She's either your your sibling's mother is what you call her, or you call her by her first, the first letter of her of her name. And it's her full name is never in there. And it's 
it's interesting because you know she is such a a, a big figure in this book and and I wonder um, if you can just talk to us a little bit about her and about your relationship with her, because it was it's very complicated. Yeah, it's, it's, I think that, you know, you started mentioning that my father is kind of aloof and, and he was geograph- geographically distant because he's in America and I was in Denmark. And I realized when I came over there and became part of the family that he was distant in, in a different way because he was not very much in the house. He was... He was in, in uh, he, he's a physicist, so he, he worked in a university and he came home kind of after we'd eaten in the evening. So so the house and the world and the family I got into was very much a family where he was not such an active part. And and so so my sibling's mother was basically the one who was the ruler of the world I entered our relationship is complicated because in many ways I admire her, but I was also very afraid of her when I was a child. Yeah. And she had, had these, um, you know, moods. So there was a feeling that even though they live in a, lived in a huge house, like a mansion, like a, a, a house that we don't see those kind of houses in Denmark, but, but in this house, it was a huge house and you never knew who exactly was in the house or where they were. But even then, I could always, everybody in the house could always sense her mood. Uh, and, and that kind of gave a feeling like it entered almost the womb of a whale or something that it was almost, the house was almost an organic, you know, living thing that it was almost like you were entering her inside. And and um, she she's is the kind of person who constantly talks. So you, you get like a stream of conscious life with direct access to her innermost thoughts, almost like a voiceover, kind of explaining everything that was going on in the house, even commenting on my siblings in front of me. And, and so she was the voiceover in a sense, and I was the camera. And there mm. was this kind of reciprocity of that she, I felt in a sense, she treated me like a grown-up. That I would understand and and relate to all these adult kind of this adult voiceover that she uh, exposed me uh, to, and and uh, and in a way I did because now I I wrote, I wrote about it in a book, you know. So in in a way it 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 streamed directly into this very susceptible mind because I was there and 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 being from the outside going into this treasure world that I was being part of this world only in the summer I needed to in a sense record everything in my mind and I needed to hold on to so so my experience during those summers was so intense because I needed to keep it and bring it back with me home so I could kind of you know uh, have that when I weren't part of it yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because yeah. that 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 really um, goes to memory, and memory is such a big part of of this book, and and how yeah. you in particular, um, how you seem to access memory, and 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 that, as you describe, is certainly through through uh, stories and through language and through experience, and I, I just want to read um, one, maybe two short passages from this that just gets to that. Um, 
and this is from the English edition, page, page 90, um, you write, stories are the format in which we store our past. They are not a true format. The truth is not at all the point. Sense and meaning are. There are just as many pasts as there are people, and then more still. We collect pasts and save them for our own sake. And every once in a while, we take them out and polish them against our pant legs or the edge of our sleeve, and we hold them up to the light, and maybe we see new things in them, things we haven't seen before. And so that certainly goes to what you just were saying in terms of how you used to bring that back with you to, to, to Denmark after each summer. And then later on in that first part, this is the end of the, towards the end of the first part, page 145 in the English edition, you're, you're talking about your father and you know, you're, 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 you write about, about him, I pin him down with language. I destroy my memory by pinning it in place. I crucify it on the page. I choose these words. I could have chosen others. I choose this moment. I could have chosen another. There is no chronology. It all happens at the same time, accessible to memory. It's all linked through not necessarily, though not necessarily connected. To put it down on paper is to put it in sequence. To put it in sequence is to postulate a connection. So it's interesting. And then later on in the book, when you're traveling, um, you are very, you're very active on the page and with your father discussing how these are the memories you're going to take back with you to write. And so there is a real sense, at least that I'm getting as the reader, is, is one of the ways that you access memory is by collecting stories, by using language, by putting all that stuff down on, on, on paper through your works that you're able to, to access it. Is that, is that accurate? In a sense, yes. But as soon as you, I started writing, trying to write these things down, I realized that even those very same memories and very same experiences, I have like a, 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 a number of summers and, and these are the experiences and I've been going through these experiencing experiences uh, all my life in a sense because they, were, they are my gold nuggets. But they change over time. Right. Uh, so, and I think that that in a larger sense, stories normally stories is something you share with other people, and like in in a fam like anecdotes, you know, everybody, all families have anecdotes, and that's kind of that's what confirms them in being a family. That that you know, that's the that's the whole meaning of having anecdotes. It's to it's a it's a collective memory within a family in a, in a way of confirming that you are related, which is why it's so boring to attend other people's family reunions because they start telling these stories and they're completely meaningless outside this community. <laughs> and, and, and in a sense, I didn't have those kind of stories because I didn't have anybody to share those stories with. And so what I didn't have stories, I had memories. In, in, in the minute I started writing them down I feel like I'm also destroying them because I'm making mm. them one thing because as soon as you start taking words and you start you know sequencing things and you know things get small, get get a lot more fixed than memory actually is because memory is much more floating um, I, I worked on this book quite a while and, and, and the way I work is not very linear so, so many of the, the things I wrote and the scenes and it's, it's things I've, I've written several times and then I find it I, that I've written it in an earlier version and, and maybe a year has gone by meanwhile. And the next time I've written it, it's, it's a different thing. 
because the point from where I remember it and why I remember it is, is another point than when I remembered it the last time. Right. So, so I realized that our past is forever changing, the same past. I was going to say, and, and time plays a, a, a big um a big part in this because there is um and we'll get to this in, in a second because there, there's not just the past that um is is changing and different but also the now and that's something that you and your father talk a little bit about towards the end of the book and and i i do want to switch over to the travel book that you call it um and and before we do though i'm just curious i mean I, I, you know, you and I were talking earlier, and I, I went to college in Missouri and spent a lot of time in in St. Louis. And you know, one of the things that I, I got from the first part of the book, the memory book, as the pages went on, there's sort of this increased kind of um, uh, darkness that sort of seems um, that seems to be coming across the page. People are your neighbors are murdered. The there's a, a woman, young girl, who has her her head chopped off in this nearby apartment building. It's a real like American darkness that sort of is, is cascading yes. across the page. I mean, what, what did you feel as a, as a teenager going back to the United States? I mean, were you like, what the hell is this country? Like, why are these people, like, what, what, was, what was your reaction to, to what, what you were seeing? So those things were never kind of really discussed with us. I remember it was kind of seeping through from the adults somehow it was something we knew but I don't remember anybody ever sitting down with us and telling us what happened we kind of just knew and so it was it was this kind of subconscious presence of something we were not allowed to go back there and play and we lived in a street that was kind of enclosed and there was a fence at the end of the street with bars and we could all exactly just crawl through the bars because we were still so small. But that exact summer when the girl with the decapitated head was kind of in our subconscious, uh, my head had become too big to take through the bars. It was each day right. I had to I had to kind of screw my head through the bars in a certain kind of angling. And I could almost feel my head because I was growing. And that, that, that every day my, my head was just a tiny bit larger that that very soon I would not be able to slip through the bars and run with my siblings and to go to the place where we were not allowed to play. And it's it's the irony of, you know, that I'm the one almost at the brink of becoming an adult or a young woman at that point, the teenager and the the, the, the whole darkness my, my father went out and had to acquire a pistol or a gun. I don't know what it's he, he would correct me, I'm sure. So a weapon, which is something very far from how the Danish community or the Danish um, country is, because people don't have weapons, and and and, and in a sense, people don't really get murdered around here. I mean, of course there are some, but it's it's very dark and it's very different. And I think that that in, in Denmark, the American culture is very pre pre prevalent. Because we have, uh, you know, cinema, we have movies, we have, you know, series and all that, and it's always been like that. So I think that in in the in general sense, you think, okay, we are part of, we are very much, you know, in the Westernized, Americanized part of the world, and 
what I realized growing up in these two places is that there's a very big difference between uh, living in America and living in Denmark. And, and, and I think that this uh, gap of what I experienced growing up in the summers over there and bringing home that darkness that is very hard to kind of convey really for Danes because uh, I think Danes feel they know America through the films and, and, and that's almost our place also. But in a sense, it's it's also very far away. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, and speaking of, of far away, I mean, the second part of the of the book is a, is a travel book. Um, it's called Travel Book. It's it's um, more essayistic than the first part of the book, um, less memoiristic. But you know, you you travel to Texas, and and one of the things that your book does in both parts is it, it explores um, ideas of myths and how you know the the myth the myths of fathers, sort of the myths of of the United States, sort of the the, the myth of um, of, of what they both represent. And so I, I wonder what made you want to travel to Texas to explore your own family myths? Cause that's really where everything started for your, for your American family, at least is, is, you know, in this, uh, in this small town of, of Lockhart, Texas, what made you want to go back to explore that? It was actually something that arose as I was writing the first part of the book. So the first part of the book in a sense is, a need to write down and make into paper or something that I felt was very fragile and I was that was only in a sense inside my head. And I was afraid literally that my father would pass away and I would never know because yeah. nobody would inform me and all that. So I started so that was the, the, the what what got me started writing the book. And as I was writing and there was a lot of complication his wife forbid him to come and visit me in Denmark and I thought, you know, maybe I'll never see him again. I couldn't go and visit him because of, you know, complications uh, of, of the same kind of complications, in, you know, something I'll never understand. But but it's these kind of fam- family complications that are also part of the book. And I thought, maybe I'll never see my father again. And then this idea arose that maybe we could meet some third place Maybe that would be a way to see my dad. And also, I'd never really been to Texas. I'd only been to Texas um, for two or three days to, to visit my grandmother. And Texas is, is the place where my father grew up, where my, my family came from, my American family came from. And uh, so St. Louis is just a place, like a, a coincidental place that my father right. moved to. But right. it's not really the family place and uh and 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 in a way texas has always been as a shadow inside me it's it's the home place that i've never known Hmm. (laughs) so so i wanted to return to a place that i'd never seen (laughs) if that makes sense it it Uh, does it does (laughs) and it's you know it's it's totally fascinating too because um your family your texas family it just it brushes up against so, so much American history and, and so many of the stories we tell ourselves as Americans, um, so much of the mythology of America. I mean, especially in the South. I mean, there's a you you really write well about um, the complications of, of of race relations and slavery. I mean, you have a, a relative 
of yours that you meet while you're you're in Texas who honestly believes that your family, you know, treated their slaves really well and they kind of were friends with their slaves and yet she's also a, a huge fierce defender of Obama and it's like people who criticize Obama are racist and and that I mean yes. that's a real American contradiction I mean that that's something yes. that's at the core of our essence and so did, yeah. did, did exploring you know meeting your family there exploring all that history with your family in Texas I mean how did that impact your thoughts on, on the United States? I think it, in a sense, it, I'm almost afraid to say cleared up things. I was interested in, in connecting with my dad and getting to know the place he came from. And by that proxy, you know, the place I came from, but mostly the place my father came from. And going into that little point, which is Lockhart and my family history, I would kind of unravel the whole Texan history and in a strange sense also uh, this, the history of the United States, you know, in, in, a, in a kind of weird roundabout way. It's, it's, the, it's the story of the whole continent of, uh, or at least the, the, the North American part of the continent where my father comes from. And I didn't know that. It was kind of just a little point and then the rings just became larger and larger. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's interesting to me that you know all of this came about as as you said earlier that you know on this journey to sort of want to spend time with your dad and, and get to know your yeah. dad better. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit about your dad's profession, um, and then you know how um, that impacted you as a writer. So my dad is is a physicist, and he's. Uh... Uh, he specialized in a, in a number of fields, but very much also in quantum mechanics. And he's he's always been very interesting, interested in, in time. I remember when I was 13, he would start talking to me about how when you get older, time goes faster. And uh, and he had this experience seeing the movie 2001 by Kubrick, where there's this this baby sitting, lying in a bed. And then, you know, in the next cut it's an old man and he saw this movie with my mother when she was pregnant with me and he was you know to him this was the essence of life that that one just one in a snap you are an old man and then your whole life is behind you and um and he started talking to me about that when i was 16 and i could not connect to it because i thought what do you mean i was you know <laughs> waiting for his letters they would take 10 days to cross the Atlantic. And those 10 days were like a million years long. And then as I started writing the book, that was also, I started feeling this cold breath of time, you know, how the, the, each hour gets shorter. And, uh, and that's why I started writing the book. And that's, you know, the town is really, you know, down below everything this book is about. It's really about time. And you start, you know, when, when I started writing about, you know, when you start writing about your memories and all that, you know, time becomes very, you know, strange and like flexible because it's it's almost everything is there at the same time, always. And and my, my you know, my father and I, we have conversations in the second part of the book when we sit in Texas and when we look at the stars and he starts talking about time and he's thinking about time that he's becoming very occupied with in, in his older days because he says time is really something 
that physics cannot account for. You know, in physics, you you can only stipulate time. You know, in a in a formula, you say time t. So you have to introduce time because you know time exists. And the only, you know, the only thing that tells you that time exists is our subjective experience of the now. Yeah. You know that now is qualitatively different from the past and the present. And 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 what he says that. In, in physics, you know, in a sense, he says it's it's like a fourth dimension, but you imagine it like everything is on the map, like on a map, but in a fourth dimension. So everything that's ever happened and everything that will ever happen, because for physics, there is no difference. You know, everything is there. And, uh, and then something introduces the now, because we know the now exists because this is what we experience. And the only way we know it is from experience. And he says, something needs to activate that uh, from the outside. Um, it, it was, it, honestly, <laughs> it was it was truly one of the more profound discussions of of metaphysics, of time and existence that I've, I've read in a while. It was just, it was just very fascinating to, 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 to read and to, you know, imagine you and, and your father under the stars of, the small town in, in Texas having these sort of <laughs> profound discussions where it was just as a reader, it was, it was, it was a great, a great joy. And um, speaking of time, Matilda, I think we're, we're just about out of time um, for this episode of, of, of Globally Lit, but um, I really uh, want to encourage everyone that's listening to go out and, and buy Lone Star. It's a wonderful read. Um, and I want to thank you very much for, for joining us um, today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it was wonderful. Thank you so much. And now, Misha Hoekstra is going to be in conversation with one of the co-translators of Lone Star, K.E. Semmel. Hello. My name is Misha Hoekstra, and I am a Danish to English translator of literary fiction, which is how I know Kyle Semmel, also known as K.E. Semmel on the page, and he is um, a translator also of Danish to English, but also Norwegian to English. And he has a good dozen books under his belt. So welcome, Kyle. And, Thank you, Misha. And um, just, just wondering, what's with the KE? <laughs> Do any of your friends call you KE or? Uh, so years ago, I published my first story uh, in the Ontario Review. It was, it was an exciting time because it was uh, selected by uh, Joyce Carroll personally then. And when I saw it and I saw it in print, I thought nobody, Kyle's such a stupid name. Like nobody is going to read a story seriously by an author named Kyle. Um, I've always had some issues with my name. <laughs> and so I thought that sounds, that's a nice ring to it, K.E. Semmel. And so from then on, I was always K.E. Semmel. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's so grown up. Yeah, it seems so. It's like K.E. Loistrup, you know. <laughs> Have you read him, the, the Danish no. philosopher? No. Okay. Well. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Um, I think one of the things that intrigues me most about this is that you co-translated with a translator we both know fairly well, Martin Aitken. And how did that come about? And how did it? How did it work out in actual practice? Because I've never tried doing that. 
Yeah, and uh, this was my first time too. And uh, it's a you know it's a it's a simple thing, and it's it's less exciting than you might think. Um, I wrote about this a little bit in a piece for LitHub called "Translating at the Blurred Edges of Fiction and Memoir," I believe it was called. But essentially, Martin translated about twenty thousand words of a sample for Deep Vellum, the Texas-based publisher run by Will Evans, and he liked it enough to, to buy the book. But Martin, who, as you know, is pretty busy uh, as a translator and um, he, he, he couldn't do it, he didn't have the time. So he asked me if I was interested in doing it. And, um, you know, I saw the, the PDF, I read the PDF sample and I was really taken by it. I really liked its blend of fiction and memoir. And, um, and so I said yes to the project. And so essentially I translated the the remaining was about 100,000 words, I'd say. Um, I think it's total 120,000 roughly words. And I translated the last 100,000. And then at the end, we did read the book together. And so we did look at the words, the language, and certain things on a more co-basis, I'd say. And, and then, of course, uh, uh, Matilda was also, you know, she did also read a draft of it, and she had suggestions as well. From the get-go with this particular book, I knew because so much of it is set in the United States and she's a Danish-American girl, everything about it to me was, okay, this book has to be translated into American. And so, as you know, Martin is English and he's a very excellent translator uh, who can also translate into American, whatever this you know fuzzy thing is, uh, American-English difference, obviously he can do that. But for me, it was very much about making it sound as American as possible. And so that was that was one of the keys for me as far as translating it. Yeah, I have I have to say that it seemed pretty seamless, and I wasn't able to tell where those twenty thousand words left <laughs> off. Well, that's and good. Hundred thousand words yeah. began. That that's um, good. Um, I I certainly know where they are, and but that's partly because I know just what he translated. So um, yeah, but it also it also makes sense that you um, you went back and forth and you tried to harmonize a little bit your voices right as well as give each other i'm sure a bit of suggestive oh sure um, yeah. comments yeah absolutely and there were certainly words that we both ended up agreeing okay so if i use this word then you should use that word and i can't remember specifically what it were i i wish i could but you know you know how these things go this is a book that technically we were done with two years ago so it's been a long time since uh, uh since we we translate the book and, and I don't take notes when I'm translating. I don't know if you do, but I don't take notes so that these conversations would be easier when I can say, oh yes, this is what, this is the, this is the, the problem I had in translation and this is how I solved it. I don't do that. So it's hard for me to have these. Yeah, I don't take notes, but there tend to be lots of comments in word files or in emails, but they are hard to search, especially if there are 20 different versions of yeah. a file. Um, yeah. But yeah, if they're, 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 they're often comments back and forth with a publisher or an editor or the author. Yeah. And those are exciting conversations, as you know. It's, you know, it's changed this period. Some, some, some of them. Well, so did you have big challenges, any difficulties in terms of words or in terms of this particular translation, in terms of the voice? You know, I think... Some of the challenges in this particular book uh, were really 
subject matter. Um, there's it, the uh, the father, Matilda's father, is a physics physics professor, and you know he does many body theory and uh, many you know I, many body theory is his big thing, and he's won the won prizes for. It. And it's you know they have a conversation at one point, and and I actually remember reading it and thinking, I, I how am I going to translate this? I don't know. I shouldn't say how I'm going to try. It was just more, it was more work, in all honesty, just simply because that's a subject matter. I, I, I'm not into physics. I like physics. I think it's great. And as a layman, I'm, I'm into it, but, you know, string theory and things like that, I, I tend to, um, I don't know a whole lot about it. So it was, it was a challenge in that. That would be, that's one that I, I can specifically remember. I, looked at this both in Danish and English. And one of the differences I noticed in the reading experience is that in the Danish version, a lot of the dialogue is actually in English. Yeah. Um, and so that, that strangeness is lost. That is absolutely true. And you, as, as, as American or English language readers, you don't get that in the translation. You don't get that sense. And, and certainly when when you get pages of text in English, it makes it easier. It makes it go faster in a sense. You get a page of, of dialogue. There's, there's like, okay, well, there's there are these these English uh, you know, dialogue interspersed with Danish, and so it was it was it went faster as you can imagine. So <laughs> that's yeah, but you still got paid the same yeah uh, yeah same price per word, right? Yeah, and this is an example of of some of the Americanisms, you know. Matilda grew up in, in Denmark primarily. And so there are there were times when, you know, I suggested to her, well, maybe, maybe the father should say this and said this, this is this sounds more of like what he would say as opposed to this. And so even there though, there were still some translation type matters. It was English into English in a sense. Like I was just thinking, right, well, you know, would that person who grew up in you know, Missouri or Texas, whoever, whatever the case may be. Would they say that particular phrase that sounds not quite like what they would say? And so, so there was some of that. Um, one of the things that is unique about this book, and I know it's touched on in the earlier uh, part of this podcast, is whether or not this is an autofiction or a novel. And right. uh, it's listed here as a novel. And Matilda says it's a novel. And I love the fact in the, in the previous part, how she said, you know, people can read it how they wish. And that's, to me, that's the best answer for this uh, because it's, it's, it's just perfect. Like, how do you define anything uh, as a novel or as an autofiction? Like, autofiction is a term I've never particularly cared for. So I like that it's kind of straddling these, these different possibilities. It seems to work well for the book. Uh, even when you're writing a memoir, as you know, when you're writing a memoir, you know, how much of it are you making up? Like, how much of what we recall is is real or true or imagined or concocted, right. you know? I think that um, even if we can agree that the issue of genre is not so important here, it seems that that straddling um, was something that really appealed to you. Absolutely. So Michael Chabon wrote a book called Moonville, which I read about in that other uh, Lit Hub piece. And I, I absolutely love it. I love that play. I love playing with the reader's expectations. 
And I love it when authors do it. And so how many readers today, if you go to amazon.com or Goodreads and, and you hear uh, somebody writing a review of a book and they, how many times they talk about the person thinking it's their own life, that the character in the book is based on the, the, the novelist. And it doesn't matter who it is. There's so many people who, who kind of meld the two, the idea of the novelist as the character, the main character of the book. And so when an author actually uses that and kind of drives this, this, this wedge between the reader and his or her expectations and, and kind of plants the seed of like, this, this is me, this could be me. I, you know, this is, my name is Mike Shaban and, and the characters in the book is Mike and, or my name is uh, Matilda Walter Clark and, and the character in this book is Matilda Walter Clark. That to me is brilliant. And because you can do so much with it, you can, you can, you can write humor that's real or not. And you can write actual memories that you have. You can elaborate on them in ways that add to the novel or the, the story. Like, you know, mm -hmm. like the way you, you put something together here, the, the theme of time, for example, the use of 2001, A Space Odyssey throughout the book. That is a fictionalized conceit, so to speak, I think, because, you know, real life doesn't have these things floating through it like that. And so when you put these things right. together, you're doing it for a reason. And that reason is, in this case, I, I would say, it's like, it's it's a, a kind of a theme that's running through this book. So, and and that's certainly, it would seem a wish of hers to to toy with this notion of time, something that her father, the very person she, in the book, is trying to get closer to it's something that he's really invested in so it, it's it's brilliant that way so did i'm just curious because i'm always curious about this um how closely did you end up working with matilda i would imagine that her english is fairly good yeah it is um but actually we didn't work that much together on it um, she did read it once or twice, maybe. I think it was just once, though, and gave feedback and in track changes. And then we had to go through, we, uh, me and Martin, had to go through and accept or reject or make counter suggestions. Um, and so that was essentially the extent of it. Um, she, um, uh, yeah, she was good. And, um, very respectful of our work too. Um, and, um, but you know, it, it is her book ultimately. And so she had suggestions and she, you know, I think it's, it is incumbent on the translator to, to respect that as well, I think. At the same time, within limits, knowing that, you know, the translator isn't always the right person to say what's right in the, in the, in the you know, target language. So, hmm. and that's where ultimately Martin and I had you know, final say in terms of you know, what ended up, I shouldn't say, yeah. I mean, we had a safe say to what really ended up here because, you know, we're the ones who are native English speakers, so. Right, right. You and know, I want to, before, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, it's, it, in some sense, it becomes your book. Right. Equally. Yeah, and, you know, before I forget this, there's one other thing I want to say in the opening part uh, called Memory Book, is set in St. Louis. 
primarily set in St. Louis. Uh, a little bit about the book, you know, she grew up in Copenhagen in a series of apartments with her mom. And when she was 11, she started to take these summer trips to St. Louis. And she was 11 around 19, you know, would have been in the early to mid 1980s, I believe. And I am roughly the same age. And I'm a St. Louis Cardinals baseball fan. And so that's the years, those are the years that I became a big Cardinals fan. And I've told her this. And throughout reading it, I kept thinking, oh, they're going to go to a Cardinals game and I'm going to have this really weird meta moment where I'm going to be like remembering my own memories inside this novel because she's going to see, you know, Willie McGee and Vince Coleman or Keith Hernandez or something like that. These players that I really liked. And I was really disappointed that like this, this book that was particularly good and primed for it. And her, her dad was a big Cardinals fan, I guess. And, um, you know, I was ready for it. It never came. But the St. Louis scenes are, are, are really fantastic. They feel like a, um, how do I say this? It, they're kind of dark, would you say? Mm. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, and, and, and they, yeah. Sometimes they feel surreal too. They do. In a, in a way that somebody who is, grew up in the Midwest, say. That's um, right, you're in Illinois. Yeah. Um, they, they, they seem more exotic in some ways. So it's a bit like the travelogue that Texas becomes right. to a greater degree in the travel book part of the novel. Yeah. There's, the family itself is, is a unique family. And I think a, mm. and unique in literature too, because you know, the, the stepmom is Dutch and she raises her child, children in a, in a, in a unique way. Um, and here comes this Danish American girl into this really kind of strange situation. And, um, you know, strange in a familiar way, strange in an American way here, you know, experiencing the 4th of July for the first time, a crazy holiday, experiencing a, a, a St. Louis, you know, an American school and having to, to go into a uh, administration's office to, to be registered for the school and having to answer questions, things like that, things that we take for granted. And, you know, I think she's a, an observant kid, which makes these passages, I think, particularly interesting for American readers, because you know she's seeing it from an outsider's perspective, and and I, I really like that. And but I also just like the, the little details in the in the book, uh, in particular in the St. Louis passages, because these are this is kind of like a coming of age story at this point, and mm. it's a it's just a unique family, and and I was just taken by it, absolutely. I'm not going to read this, but this is one of the passages I, passages I was going to read, but in the book there's. They, they're, they're actually these two houses. These are these big old houses. And in the neighbor's house at one point, I think it was in 1984, there was a murder, a brutal murder of a mother and her child. And, you know, Matilda writes about this. She didn't, of course, know so much about it at the time. But then the, the Dutch mother, after, you know, some time passes, decides that that's the house they want to live in the house that where this this brutal murder took place, and now that it's hey it's cheaper on the market because nobody wants to buy this house, you know they're going to buy this house. So from one summer to the next, she moves into this from one house to the next, and 
you know, that passage and that, that whole idea of just, you know, oh, look, you know, because of this murder, the house is cheaper. So I love this house. It's beautiful and it's bigger. And we're going we're gonna to move over there. Uh, that in itself was like, I can't believe this is happening. But that's the kind of thing to give you an idea of the situation. Yeah, I, I actually really loved um, the very beginning of that passage just because it, it really felt like something that, um, it, it felt more like a memoir in some ways than a, the novel because, well, it, it was a weird mix because I haven't been completely honest when writing about my father's house as if there were only one. In reality, there were two which in my dreams and in my memory have melted into one. And perhaps this dreamlike monstrosity is the one that has appeared on paper. And then she details some of the differences mm -hmm. in the color of the house and some of the other things. But that happens more than a hundred pages in where you've been thinking of it as one. And it's, yeah, it's, it's this artifact of memory in some ways. And uh, there's something really lovely about that. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, the other the other kind of doubling that I really like, um, which you've you've referenced, is that as an American reader, it feels strange to hear about somebody encountering, you know, in idiomatic American English now, <laughs> um, the Fourth of July for the first time, and it's it so it feels like a, a different kind of translated reading experience than one usually encounters because the the language doesn't feel translated the, the language feels very smooth and straightforward but the perspective of the material on something familiar feels strange yeah and and i think the same dynamic is at work in the section in part two uh, in the travel book and and when when she goes to Texas, because, you know, we, we know of Texas as this, you know, massive state, and we have our particular views of Texas. And here, here comes this essentially foreign girl, woman, really, um, into, into play. And, and, you know, here we start learning about, about Texas history. There are things I didn't know, of course, about Texas history that find their way in this book. So you learn a lot about Texas history, but you're seeing it from a different vantage point you're seeing it from a Danish woman's perspective and in particular with certain characters who appear who have views that you know are very counter to her European Danish sensibility of you know whether it's guns whether it's um, uh, civil rights even and and that I think for American readers to read that you know I think that is a bit of an eye-opener you know, you see it from a different perspective, but you see it in such a, you know, smart and cogent kind of an analysis of or commentary of, of the culture that we live in, that we're consumed by every day. You know, it's, it's unique that way, I think. And then there's added bonus of having, you know, this relationship to her father, this vast, you know, this figure that's been, that's dominated her life, but from afar. And now she's, she gets to be close. She gets to be in his orbit even if only for 10 days, you know, these are this orbit of her as a grown woman now, as somebody who is well past the age of like, you know, when you're in awe of your father, at, you know, when you're 15, maybe, especially when, 
it's a distant father and suddenly you're there and it's, you're in awe of him and now she's 40 and she's seeing her father from close perspective and it's different entirely but it's still that interpersonal relationship that that kind of is it's very moving to mm. to see that that closeness and 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 there's still a distance there you know because there's still an unbridgeable at least for me there's still that unbridgeable language of physics and you know and then her language of you know whether it's danish or whether it's you know the more humanistic i shouldn't say humanistic but more um you know literary kind of there's a difference there and so right you know, it, it seems very real to me that dynamic between father and daughter well let's let's uh let's let me read from one more passage because and i'm just gonna read a paragraph because uh it, it goes back to that theme this is now on page 398 so i want to kind of return to what we had talked about earlier and the way that this 2001 space odyssey floats through the novel time my dad's favorite subject has gradually also become mine. When I was 15, I did not understand why the film 2001, A Space Odyssey, disturbed him so much. I never made it past the human apes at the beginning without falling asleep. And his assertion that life was over in, a, in an instant always seemed to be greatly overblown. It sounded like something he and other middle-aged people made up when they no longer saw their lives spread before them like a vast grassy meadow. But now, now I can see myself as an old woman who soon, in the next scene, will lie in a large bed imagining a younger version of herself, such as, say, the person I am now. And, you know, I, I just love that. And in terms of a narrative perspective, just that repetition. There's a, I mean, the motif. Right. Per Olaf Enqvist. Have you read some of his work, the Swedish no, novelist? No, no. So he does this one thing. He does this really well, this, this repetition that that he puts in, in, um, in, in his work where these, these, these little things appear again and again, they lend meaning, higher meaning to those, those things. And I feel like that's what Lone Star is doing here with the use of 2001 Space Odyssey floating through mm. on this you know, concept of time. And uh, oh. you know, it's a novelistic trick, I would say, more than it is a memoir trick, but it's, it really, connects well i think sure and especially because the the very the way it's described at the beginning is these three simultaneous ages of of the the astronaut returning yeah and i understand why you refer to her when she's in texas as a girl because <laughs> she is such a girl in the beginning of the novel in the first half that it feels like, and especially her relationship to her father doesn't get resolved. So in some sense, she's still a girl. Yeah. When she goes to Texas, even though she's... Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because there's a scene in which, in Texas, they go through a car wash. You remember the scene? And, yeah. And, I think it's and her window is open, he forgets to put it up, and so she gets drenched. Oh. <laughs> and he says, oh, my little girl. And it was, you know, she was in, she was in her 40s at that point, and, he, and and she kind of like thought about that, like, oh, my little girl, where he, she actually called her that. And it, was, it had a meaning, a deep meaning to her. Um, so it's funny you say that, actually. You know, I, I'm, I'm finding myself really enjoying this conversation. It's fun always to talk to you, Misha, but also because I hadn't thought about these things in a long time. And so I'm kind of just like verbal vomiting on the page because I'm just remembering what I loved about this book. You know, you know, the thing is about this book, I really feel strongly that this is some of one of my 
favorite novels I've ever translated. I really love this book. And it was it was a fun book to translate. And it was it was strange too because I'm not a full-time translator, not anymore. I was for about three years. It's about all I could do. I'm not somebody I can't do the hustle of the translation. And I so I have to work full time. And so when I originally said yes to this, I, I was between jobs. I wasn't actually, I was hoping to be a full-time translator again, but they just, it just, it was just too much, too, too much of a struggle to, to, to get the books lined up. And so when this came in, that was great. Uh, but then I, I got an offer to a job and I took it. And so I started to translate this book and then I moved into this new position and it was, it was a crazy chaotic time I remember but I you know as I always do I get up at you know the ask crack of dawn at like five in the morning and I'm translating and and then going to work and uh, but I really enjoyed this 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 one and so I hope it does well yeah I think it's a real real pleasure so first I want to say thank you Misha for um, for this conversation it's always a pleasure to talk to you I want to say kind of a I'm I'm really honored to do this podcast at uh, you know globally lit for the Choose Center for International Literature. You know I mentioned that story earlier that was published under my name Kyle Semo. It was it was in large measure thanks to Alan Choose, the namesake for the Choose Center. He is extremely instrumental in my younger life as a writer, um, and that story in particular. I actually workshopped with him and he gave me an incredible amount of feedback. And I took that feedback and I basically cut an entire story and just took one sentence from that story and created another story. And that was the story that was, you know, Joyce Carol Oates published in the Ontario Review. And so Alan Schuess was truly a wonderful, in my experience, a wonderful man. I feel like we lost a great one when when he was he was unfortunately taken from us. And I have nothing but good things to say about Alan Chu. And I'm I'm really honored to be part of this podcast um, today for for the Chu Center for International Studies or Literature. Thanks very much, Kyle K. E. Um, and <laughs> it's been a real pleasure talking about Lone Star by yeah. Matilda Walter Clark. And now Anna Thorne of Books Across Borders will be offering several suggestions of great translated books. Hi, listeners. I'm Anna Thorne, a co-producer of Globally Lit. I'm also the director of Books Across Borders, a literary nonprofit that works to increase readership of international literature. So clearly I'm someone who's pretty invested in great translations. And 2021 was an excellent year for works in translation. In particular, it was a great year for translations by independent presses. Every one of the National Book Award finalists for translated literature was from an indie press. And with such a wealth of great books from the past year, I wanted to do a quick tour of the bounty the year brought us. Stories from Japan to Cuba to Germany of all different styles and genres. I'll just throw a bunch of my favorite titles at you, and in the show notes, we'll have links for you to explore more and buy them through the wonderful bookshop.org. First up, When We Cease to Understand the World from New York Review of Books. 
It's an incredibly ambitious novel that is also about ambition. It explores the lives of real scientists and philosophers whose work led to ethically complicated and sometimes cataclysmic consequences far beyond what they could have imagined. Haber, Heisenberg, and Schrodinger are there along with many others. I would have loved to see more women, but I will say the men featured do tend to lead pretty unenviable lives. The novel explores the interplay of genius with alienation and isolation and a fair bit of madness. Labatut, the author, does a great lovely job with the ambiguity of whether lives are made better, worse, or simply different by the discoveries. And one more NYRB book I want to quickly mention, Peach Blossom Paradise. This one takes place in China during the Hundred Days Reform in 1898. We follow Shumi, the daughter of a wealthy landowner who disappears. Shumi has to navigate alone through the changing social and political world in which those who seem to be working beside her to build a more egalitarian world sometimes reveal themselves to be, shocker, a part of the problem. Winter in Sokcho. I wanted to include this one partly because it's the winner of the National Book Award for Translated Literature, and partly because it's a perfect read for the chilly winter evenings we've been having lately. I think Open Letters Blurb captures it beautifully. It's as if Marguerite Duras wrote Convenience Store Woman. I consider that an irresistible combination. I'm a big fan of essay collections, so here's a book I've been recommending a lot lately, Migratory Birds. It's from Transit Books by Mexican essayist Mariana Oliver. This is her debut collection, and it roves through history from revolutionary Cuba to the Berlin Wall and explores memory and language, war and pain, migration, and home. For those of you who loved Breasts and Eggs, the fantastic novel by Miyako Kawakami, she has a new one with Europa. It's called Heaven, and it is just as fantastic. Heaven is told from the perspective of a 14-year-old student with a lazy eye. We witness bullying and tormenting from other kids and how that impacts him. We also get to see the revelatory effect of solidarity and sympathy from another student who sees what he's going through. Right at the end of the year, an inventory of losses snuck in. It's by Judith Shalansky, author of Atlas of Remote Islands. This one reminded me a bit of Rebecca Solnit in its loving, careful cataloging of a dozen treasures. As the title suggests, these are treasures that no longer exist. A species of tiger, a Caspar David Friedrich painting, a villa in Rome, a Greek love poem, even an island in the Pacific. The reflections explore these losses as well as memory itself. I think that's all I have time for here and possibly more than I had time for. I hope there was something for everyone in my roundup of favorites. Um, pick one and start 2022 off the fabulous translation. That wraps up our episode of Globally Lit, a podcast. Thanks to Mathilde, K.E., Misha, and Anna. A very special thanks to Martin Mitchell, our producer, editor, and sound engineer here at the Chu Center, and to Anna Thorne at Books Across Borders. Globally Lit is part of the Watershed Lit Podcast Network. Remember to buy Lone Star and the other books we featured today at bookshop.org. And be sure to visit our websites, booksacrossborders.com and choosecenter.gmu.edu. Thanks to all of you for listening. We will be back soon with another episode of Globally Lit. But for now, I'm Matt Davis saying bye-bye.